welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 23rd of June, a Monday. I think we're going to try and get this out today. So we are getting more and more responsive and timely as we go along. That's all for you, our listeners. Uh, there's one thing I wanted to do at the beginning of the show that we haven't done, which is to thank James Nicholson, who is our editor. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a great guy, very interesting thoughts. He is also a writer and uh, an impressive gardener. And he and I <laughs> talk a lot about gardening. He has a he uses this method called Hugel culture, which vaguely sounds kind of alt-righty, you know, but it's actually, um, it's a layering method where you build a garden bed, like a lasagna almost, huh. of different types of, of, uh, of uh, organic materials. And then it, like, it's yielded these amazing crops for him. He's in Canada, so wow. it's not even like warm or the Central Valley of California. Anyway, we can turn this into a gardening show if you'd what like. What is but, he growing? Uh, Everything. Okay. Everything. Like uh, he has these. He has these arugula and lettuce yields that, like, I don't know why I'm calling them <laughs> yields. It's like I'm now like in the biz. <laughs> I don't even. Yeah. Know what the right is the term. volume you're working with here for it to be a yield? <laughs> like Harvest, nine, right? Like <laughs> nine heads of lettuce. <laughs> exactly. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, thank you to James. Thank you, James. And, Thanks, James. Uh, I want us to say that you can always reach us at our Twitter, which is at TTSG pod. And you can send us questions and we will, I think we're going to start reading questions and stuff out loud on the air and, you know, trying to interact with our listeners a little bit more. And thank you for uh, subscribing to our Substack. Um, and that's about it. I always hate when these things go on forever, <laughs> but I understand why people do it because you have to like, you know, show people where they can find more of your content. Okay, so on today's show, we're going to talk about white fragility. Now, everyone has kind of reviewed and torn this thing apart. And so uh, I want to apologize to Andy and Tammy for making you read this, because I do think <laughs> that when when I said we should read it, not, the sort of backlash to white fragility hadn't happened yet. But uh, oh, you think? We, oh, okay. I'm not sure. I don't know, maybe because you're so plugged in online, you've seen all that. I haven't seen that much about it. Okay, yeah. Well, I also follow a lot of, like, mildly red-pilled people, you know, and they're, all, let me tell you, they're all up in arms about it, so, um, and uh, we are also going to talk about the Korea boo, which is a, and K-pop, what happened with the Trump rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, Tammy, uh, do you, I think we should start right there, like, do you, what do you know about K-pop as a Korean-American? Almost Nothing. Do you feel like a deficiency that you don't know about it? Like, do you feel like you failed as a diasporic Korean? <laughs> I'm less worried about that and more worried about myself as a reporter who covers the Koreas because it's one of the main things that you can make money from <laughs> as a oh, Korea yeah, specialist. Yeah. And I basically know nothing about it. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's not just in like media, like it's also in Hollywood where there is this couple of months long period where there was a call out to anyone who could write a k-pop script <laughs> really that's amazing <laughs> yeah i can see that yeah and guess who they asked <laughs> and, the uh, and not, around. <laughs> not asked in like a serious way but you know it was like do you know anything about k-pop and i had to be honest and say no yeah exactly like, like what there was a sort of expectation like well why don't you know about K-pop? And I was like, well, because I'm 40 years old. 
Like, what am I supposed to know? Um, yeah, I don't know. Tammy, what did you think about this? So the story is that uh, Donald Trump had a big rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that's supposed to kick off his 2020 re-election campaign, and it was in a 20-seat stadium, and they, uh, they, they said they had all this overflow set up because they thought that hundreds of thousands of people are coming. But the story out there, according to some people, is that um, K-pop fans organized online and took all the tickets mm-hmm. and, their, and didn't show up, obviously. And so then in the end, I think about 6,000 people showed up, right. and there is a narrative out there that it was like K-pop stands. Do you, do you yeah. believe this? Um, I think, yes, I think in part. I mean, I I think the part that people are debating is whether, like, had there been a lot more people, they would have made overflow space for them. And there was, in fact, overflow space set up. And so the question is, was it the K-pop fans who actually took all the tickets or did they just, like, really mess up their system of, like, tracking supporters? And the latter part seems super clear. And we've seen the K-pop intervention in different political moments over the past few months. I mean, I don't know if people all read the White Lives Matter hashtag uh, intervention, which seemed really powerful. Like basically for folks who don't know, K-pop fans like the BTS army, as it's called in regards to BTS, um, used the hashtag White Lives Matter to fuck up the online interactions of white supremacists. So in the same way they did that, they're doing this with the Trump rally to basically like quote unquote, claim all the tickets and to then have like the campaign have all of these phony phone numbers. So I don't know whether, you know, they're the only reason why there were no supporters. It's also hot as hell and it was indoors. <laughs> um, yeah. And people are like afraid of coronavirus. Totally. You know? like, there's, yeah. a, there's a sense that like every Trump supporter doesn't care about coronavirus right. and thinks masks are stupid, but all the polling kind of shows that they do think it's less important to wear a mask, but the majority of them still think it's important to wear a mask and that coronavirus is real, you know? So the idea that that all of them, that nobody would be scared away by the virus seems a little bit specious to me, at least. Yeah, I think that's right. But I, I think we can definitely say that this was some sort of BTS Army victory against Trump. Yeah. Can I? Yeah. Go ahead, Andy. Can I say oh, Andy is also here as our co-host. <laughs> Great introductions. Uh, um, what, what, I guess this is a basic question. How are they, there's not like an app for BTS people. So yeah. how, when you say they're communicating as BTS or K-pop fans, how do they find each other? Is it through Twitter exclusively or like a Reddit page or how is this, how is K-pop the medium right. to the message, I guess? Is it? I mean, look, I I think that it's through every single form of social media, but their overwhelming shows of force are mostly on, are most, excuse me, are mostly on uh, Twitter. And TikTok, right? TikTok is like increasing. Yeah. TikTok, I think they're not as big on TikTok because TikTok is still like a lot of teens doing dancing and stuff like that. (laughs) And it's not like chaos messaging. But uh, have you ever run afoul of the of of the BTS army? I have not, thankfully. Have I you? Know. Have you? Yeah. <laughs> I had a couple moments where I was making jokes, and I could start see the starts of it, where people were like snitch tagging me. Oh God! Into big beat, and I, it was like you know, I felt like I was like a man trying to hold up a Jake like the Hoover Dam by himself, you know, like like putting you know that cartoon where the 
where I forget what cartoon character like puts his finger in all the little the holes, all the little holes right? right? That's how I felt like. I was like, no. It'll be the death I, of you. It's like, I'm okay being canceled. I've been canceled many times by many fan bases, you know, like Barstool or Jordan Peterson or whatever. And MLS was like the funniest one to me. And I always find it to be like almost invigorating and funny. But this one I didn't want any part of because I knew that it would last for like two weeks, you know, and it would never, exactly. <laughs> never stop. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, Eddie, what did you think? I mean, you also obviously paid attention to this. I'm not even going to ask if you're into K-pop, and maybe that's bigoted of me because you're, you know, I was like, why would a, you know, actually, a man in his 30s be into, <laughs> who's Chinese, actually, <laughs> Taiwanese be into K-pop? Um, my wife actually knows a lot about, not K-pop, but K-dramas, and I've been, I've, I've had conversations with friends about it. It's a big topic in academia. Yeah, really? Um, it is. Yeah. Why? Because it's everything about, it's basically the number one story in Korean studies for the last 20, 30 years, for sure. Do you guys, I was actually going to ask earlier, do you guys know the whole origin story with like Jurassic Park in the 90s and the culture industry? No, tell you us. You don't know this? Okay. No. So the... Tammy and I are bad. We're internally, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're internally racist. That's like, that should be the, uh, that should be the I've name of our I've seen a lot of K-dramas <laughs> and I'm... Yeah. fairly informed about them, but I don't know this Jurassic Park. So the story, I learned, and I'll give a shout out. I learned a lot of this from um, Tammy and my mutual friend, Jenny. But the basic mythology is, uh, you know, Korea is an export-oriented industry after the World War II. They tried to follow the model of Japan and the U.S. before them. Well, not the U.S., Japan, of doing heavy industry like cars, like Hyundai, Kia, um, you know, the Chebol with, like, Samsung making, like, physical goods, right? Yeah. And then in the 90s, Jurassic Park comes out. And whatever the budget for Jurassic Park was, the net, you know, the gross revenue was like a billion dollars or whatever in today's money. And this led to a realization by the Korean government that, you know, how many Hyundai cars would they have to sell to equal the profit rate of Jurassic Park? And so they invent this thing called the Ministry of Culture. I don't know what the Korean term would be. Um, and that's, there's a document, there's a memo that's made in the 90s. That I know, but I didn't about, know it was about Jurassic Park. <laughs> that's right. hilarious. So about turning culture into their next right. frontier of export-oriented industry. And so there's a lot of state funding for K-pop, K-dramas, mm-hmm. K-everything. Films, And so too, it's not just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's not this, like, innocent thing where um, fans are organically discovering a lot of this stuff. It's being promoted and when they so for instance uh there's a lot of like all my parents all everyone in east asia watches korean entertainment yeah. uh, my parents have watched it for years and it's not just that these um what the korean government or these companies offered was we'll give you free content we'll give you all these dramas and we'll cover the costs of translation and production yeah. and all that stuff and all you have to do is air it and you have free content now um so that's kind of the underlying I think economics behind it and my friend Definitely. today was Indian but lives in America was like her mom just texted her about Hunbin or Hunbin Hyunbin, actor, yeah. about how hot he is and how <laughs> she's watching his dramas this is in India yeah right? <laughs> well famously so, these also have a lot of traction in conservative Muslim countries because they're extremely chaste for the most part right like you can watch right. 16 hours of a show that's like a hot love affair and there'll be like a kiss right. well that's changing now there's like actually much more like steamy ones but yeah, like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, a lot of like, they're popular there, Iran, like... <laughs> right. And there's a lot of... I've talked to my wife who watches a lot of these dramas about... There's a lot of these plots about, like, the poor woman who's chosen by the rich man who, like, is inside the chebol, or sometimes they reverse the gender yeah. roles. And so there's a lot of, like, 
what's the word like allegory of like the nation and um, like getting richer and richer and what do you do about that and what do you do about the poor and the rich you know rich poor divide so I don't know we've I, I don't have the patience <laughs> to watch 26 episodes of these but just hearing them being described like oh that could be an interesting thing to write about but oh yeah to certainly to study in the academy I mean yeah. I didn't know that it was like 30 years of study but yeah I've uh <laughs> well I'd say the K whatever phenomenon Korean wave Hallyu right Hallyu is the Korean, the Chinese uh, the Korean wave you could say started in the nineties we could say yeah. that yeah yeah I I uh, I am always whenever I whenever I went on a tour of several South Asian countries in two thousand and ten and I will say that the penetration of the Korean culture industry throughout Southeast Asia was shocking to me. You know, I'd be in like Da Nang and there'd be nobody in a restaurant and the wait staff and the cooks would just be sitting around watching K-drama in every single restaurant, you know, and um, sometimes without subtitles, right? Mm -hmm. So like they're, you know, unless they know (laughs) Korean, they're not really glomming what it is, but it does make sense if that is the only, if that's the only free culture that you can get to air, then of course you're going to air it for free. Um, that, yeah, that, that's, that's fat. So like, Andy, I, I don't know. I think that that's a good point to say, which is that this moment is not new and that like the, the big hand wringing that was happening in America over the last 10 years was like this idea, maybe last 15 years, this idea of like crossover, right? Like when is, when is K-pop going to cross over? Mm-hmm. It's huge in every other country in the world. Why is it not huge in America? And the answer was, A, it is kind of huge in America. It's just that it's not the same people that you would look. You know, it's not like the daughter of the, you know, assignment editor at the New York Times who's into right. it. But she might be too now, or he might be as well if it's the son. Or, um, but it reminds me a little bit of boxing because everyone would be like, oh, boxing's dead in America, boxing's dead in America. And you would look at the ratings and the ratings are all really good and the pay-per-views are all good. And you're like, well, what's happening here? And what's happening here is that primarily black and Latino people are the ones who watch boxing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, huge in Mexican American right. communities. And, you know, the people who cover these things and decide whether things are alive or dead, like don't know any black or Latino people, right. you know, or at least the, or at least the population does boxing. And I think that um, in some ways, K-pop fandom is similar because it really does have a big stronghold in black and Latino populations totally. in here in the United I was about States. To ask that, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so is that, do, do we think that those are the, those are the people who are uh, participating in these online sort of bombardment uh, campaigns? Uh, it's, not, it's not just Korean Americans. Oh no, not at all. Oh, there it's definitely not, not Korean. Uh, and it's not Korean just Americans. national, it's international. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's people in Europe, right? It's people, mm. not so much in Asia, I don't even think, I right? Think but so. people like in, Southeast Asia? in South and Central America, maybe Southeast Asia as well, yeah. But it's, uh, it's very strange because, you know, like, I think that you get this sense that you, what you want to believe is that it's a, it's this like coalition of chaotic teens, like 15 year old <laughs> kids who have the little, BTS, like heart, heart headbands, and they're just spamming white supremacists. 
but it's not it's not quite that right like i think that there's this new narrative out now that k-pop is woke and it's driving me absolutely crazy because the entire history of k-pop is that it's super problematic it's like the most like uh like i don't know like every single story for a long time i, I think that people have erased this from their memories was just about how sexually exploitive right, that, right, that industry sure. is you know yeah. And also how racist it is, you know, and how they do like uh, basically like a paper bag test to see if you can <laughs> participate in K-pop. You have to be like very light skinned, yeah. you know, like they do these fetishizations sometimes of like Hapa kids and then sometimes they reject them. It just depends yeah. on like, you know, like what their bone structure is and stuff like that. And then the K-pop, the BTS army has been besieged by uh by accusations of racism, which seem very well-founded, right? Like, you know, like, it's basic. How many articles have you... I know a little bit more about K-pop, I think, than I think I do. But it was only (laughs) over the last... (laughs) It might be through osmosis, because I try not to get into it, because I'm just like, I don't... You know, like, it's just like, like, why... I I don't want to be like this... Right. I don't want to be like the guy, the Korean journalist, who's, like, scolding people that they don't know about K-pop. Like, I find that to be so obnoxious. I'm just like, look... I don't like, like, you know, I don't listen to this stuff. Like, you know, know. you don't have to listen to it. Next time they want a screenplay, though, Jay, you got to be ready. Yeah, Yeah, I'll tell you exactly how that goes. It'll be like six meetings and like three (laughs) phone calls and then nothing will come of it and everyone will have wasted their time. Um, Wasn't there a famous article like two or three years ago of a journalist and the entire article was like, I don't know anything about this thing called K-pop. that was and, yeah. That was John Seabrook in the yeah. in the New Yorker, and that's the one that's always is it, it was Seabrook, yeah, right, Tammy? Yeah, yeah, and it's always held up as like super condescending. It, well, it's the type of thing that everyone is mad about all the time. Right. You know, they're like, and this Seabrook, and it's like John Seabrook is an old man. You know, like it's it's, it's okay. <laughs> that was not like, very offensive have... as articles go, in my view. Like, I know, Tammy, but that's our internalized racism. <laughs> yeah, sure, <right? laughs> it, should be, it should be its own segment on the show. I mean, yeah. I think Jay and Tammy's internalized racism. <laughs> that basically is the whole show. Um, <laughs> you know, I think like the I don't think the K-pop sexism and stuff has been swept away. Like, if you've been following Korean news, there have been a couple of K-pop suicides. There's been, right. you know, the sexual exploitation scandal of trafficking in, in nightclubs through K-pop. So I think people are aware of that, but. Maybe the maybe the woke now the woke stereotype of K-pop fans is due to our friend Ask a Korean who's been you know peddling this theory that K-pop fans are like the wokest most like politically like ignitable population on earth and like if they can only come together they would solve like every crisis so you know mm-hmm. he's not always right and <laughs> but I think this this is now with like these few stories of like white lives matter to this moment has really taken off in a way that I think you're right to be critical of Jay. Well, yeah, because before that, um, Andy, I'm sorry to cut you off. I, I just want to say this one thing, which is that before that, they, uh, the story was that that black black fans of BTS and black K-pop fans were being abused by BTS Army, totally. and that there was all this stuff that about how oh, how could you be a real K-pop fan? Like you know, like you don't you don't do X, Y, and Z, um, and you know whatever communities are set up within that community would be really exclusive to black fans or Mm -hmm. exclusive meaning that they would exclude them. Um, And so I don't know where this narrative shift happens. Uh, Andy, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Well, I think that it's kind of the same question of, I just want to nail this down because we keep circling around it. Is there some sort of correspondence between K-pop and progressive values or K-pop and anti-Trumpism? Or are you just saying it's completely coincidental? Well, okay, so there's one video that came out where one of the guys in BTS, whose name I don't know, 
um, you know, gave this speech about anti-racism and gender equality and gender fluidity. Um, and it's been played millions and millions and millions of times. And I think that might have been the point where they switch, you know, where they start doing this sort of stuff. But my sense is that there is not a serious engagement with, you know, anti-racism and stuff like that, that they just do what the people in BTS say, right? Like if the people in BTS said the opposite and were like, you know, like super Korean nationalists and said, we need to get these immigrants out of Korea, then they would go on, glom onto that. Or a lot of them would, I think. But uh, I don't know. I guess it's it's a positive that, you know, BTS finally, after years and years of just being totally apolitical, is starting to be political. I think they've um, had a couple so of political interventions. Like, there was famously one of their members who, on a tour of Japan, wore a shirt that was controversial because it had a mushroom cloud. And then there were there was a critique of Japanese nationalism. And then and there was another BTS member. It's terrible that we don't know their names and we're discussing them. These are, like, the most <laughs> famous people on Earth. Um there was another, you know, BTS person who's basically become like a UN ambassador around young people's mental health. So there are like oh, these yeah. sort of progressive moments. And then I think like maybe it's like a credit to Black Lives Matter, honestly, that this like has the kind of currency it does. And that once there's a call out to the army, they can mobilize against it. I mean, that's a that's pretty low hanging fruit to be able to mobilize against White Lives Matter. So I think we right. can credit them at least that much that. There is at least like an optics to preserve around like, you know, being anti-racist, at least broadly speaking. So you think so you so Jay, it sounds like you're actually attributing some of the progressiveness of the fans to the group itself. Well, I was just kind of asking this. Maybe it's a demographic question like this yeah. group tends to attract non-white progressive people in the United States for whatever reason. I don't know if they're progressive, but yeah. OK. But yeah, like but, young kids of I, color, right? Like. Yeah, that would yeah. be a fair young assessment. Black and brown okay. kids. <laughs> yeah. Black and brown folks. Whatever yeah. phrase you want to use. <laughs> right. Young non-white yes. kids. Uh, there's a lot of them who are super into BTS. Yeah. And this is the huh. thing that I actually want to discuss because it's... I check in on this hashtag on TikTok like once every three weeks and it's my favorite. <laughs> you love I don't, I feel, so much. So you're on TikTok? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, for sure. I feel like <laughs> very... I used to... I joined TikTok because I found these uh, Chinese... Uh, video cooking videos that I was addicted to where people have you seen these Andy where people like they uh, they cook by a stream wow. oh they, yeah 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 I've yeah, seen those yeah. on um yeah right yeah they like they, it's like a guy and they show him picking it's crazy herbs oh my god and then they show him like spear fishing and then amazing. he starts a fire by a stream and then he eats it's amazing wow. it, it's like the no most like yeah, there's, there's no place no in China that looks like that at all. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, <laughs> apparently, what are they doing? They're, you're saying they're doing it on a soundstage or something like I that? Think, I think it's, I mean, they might have, like, found... I, yeah, I, like in, they're in I, Wyoming? If they're just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's in Montana. Uh, I need like to see Winnipeg. these videos. <laughs> I, I do think, my, my, my impression from those was that it was romanticizing China. Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah, it's in propaganda. Way, right, yeah. in a way that, great, like, Very successful. Oh, that most great. of China is, like, a, an industrial, like, gray... gray yeah. Blech, right? yeah. 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 It made, it, was, it made me go, want to go to China much more than anything else because it was, like... <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, this simple farmer and his, and his simple life of spearfishing and yeah, cooking yeah. by a stream. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's why I joined. But then I found this thing called the Koreaboo, which obviously has extremely problematic <laughs> linguistic... Uh, origins, 
Um, and the Kriabu, I think uh, I sent you guys these videos. I hope you watch them. But here, we're going to play some of them right here. So you're the new student here, right? And you're Japanese? Well, you know who you look like? You kind of look like Kaiopa from The Shiny Deadass. Jinja, you don't like K-pop? That's kind of xenophobic of you to say. Whatever. BGS paved the way. Oppa! and telling you how to pronounce it correctly and whether you choose to pronounce it right or wrong doesn't change the fact that you only know about Korean culture through K-pop. You don't speak the language, you don't live in that country, you don't know what Korean people, Korean customs are like. You guys are the same community that make fun of my friends like Alex, Christine, and Eddie, which are professionals in Korea that do K-pop content. Alex, Christine became a whole fucking idol. Y'all fucking accuse them of being Korea boos when they couldn't speak Korean on Korean national television. And y'all in your own comfort at home Expecting other people to change their names to have pronunciations that fit your language. Complicit with other people's culture bending to your will. Want to not be called Korea boos? In what fucking world, sis? I'm not upset at people saying Jungkook. It's how hypocritical the fucking K-pop community's mindset is. Thanks. Okay, Tam, Tammy, what, Tam, what, what, have you seen these before? I actually think you on Twitter were the first person to introduce me to these maybe a year or two ago, and I was utterly yeah. confused. I think the one that I initially saw on your Twitter was one that was like, Anyang, but they spelled it Onion. And yeah, it was like, yeah. <laughs> incredibly charming and confusing. And I think what I yeah, said the... to you and other friends at the time is like, holy shit, we made it. Yeah, it, it <laughs> felt like a, so they have, it, it is it is it is teens who are uh doing videos where they are and they where they are being pretending to be korea boos and a korea boo is a non-korean k-pop fan who really wants to be korean right so that's a distinction they always make they say if you just like bts that does and you're not korean that means that doesn't mean you're a korea boo you're a korea boo if you start speaking in Korean and you think you're Korean and you talk and you and like you do this like weird Korean, you know, like minstrelly type of thing, you know, and so they they have all these memes that make fun of those people. So one of them is, you know, in Korean, they say onion heseo, you know, instead of like onion heseo, <laughs> and they spell it with onion. And the other the funniest one to me is opar. Because, you know, like, instead of being, opa, they say, which is, means, like, you know, brother or, like, you know, big brother, whatever, Korean. They say, opar, and then they have all these, like, dialect coach type skits where they're, like, opa. And then the, and the other person's, like, opar. And they're, like, no, 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 opa. And then you go, opar. So um, it's like very that, funny. But really I, funny. I find it to be totally fascinating because it is, I mean, I could... Growing up in the 90s as, like, an uh, Asian-American, right? I could not have imagined this uh, in oh, my wildest no. dreams. Like, it's just, it feels like a new world. Like, <laughs> like when you watch them, what's your, uh, this is, like, the most, like, TV reporter question. <laughs> how, do they make, how do they make you feel? 
Am I supposed to say racially vindicated? <laughs> I mean, look, it's, I, it's your interview. I feel, you know, like. I feel excited. Like, somehow I do feel validated by these 13-year-old white girls. <laughs> Maybe it's the sense we're, of going back in time do. and feeling, you know, my, like, awkward preteen self that was so unsure of <laughs> Yeah, that that's I also feel vindicated by that because not vindicated in a way, but I try and imagine myself yes. in Chapel Hill in Chapel Hill, North Carolina at the age of 14 and everybody is paying attention yeah. to me because of of K-pop and they're saying like they're trying to speak to me in Korean and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, my Korean <laughs> I just speak back to them in equally bad Korean. You're also <laughs> like onion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a bizarre world. And of course there's all the, you know, the subtext of like what are the sub, what are the memes that go through it is like uh, you know, like Korean boys who have who have white girls and and who are way too into them because they're Korean and that part is the one that's like mind blowing. Yeah. I'm just like, "Oh my god." <laughs> like and then, but then I see all these woke uh Asians being, you know, also scolding the the Korea boos and they're just like like in really like kind of like you know like very tumblery ways where they're where they say you know if you don't if you don't speak the language perfectly if you don't know anything about korean culture then uh hmm. you need to stop you oh, know wow. and i'm just like like don't stop you know <laughs> why, why would you stop this is great is this this is the greatest come up for asian men in like the history of the, <laughs> other than insanity it's like the best moment that, that, that they could possibly have had uh, is this, are, are these Korea booze, is this like a mainstream thing or is it like kind of the otaku phenomenon with Japanese culture, right? Is mm. it like the kind of the, the kids who feel so that. isolated and excluded from mainstream American culture cling to this mm. as a like, I'm sounding really condescending right now. <laughs> I know. Uh, if they, but I, I, but I think even a lot of anime culture will say like they, they, they gravitated towards it because they felt alienated from like, yeah. NFL NASCAR culture in the U.S., right? Totally. Is yeah, that- I think there's probably some of that, or there was at the beginning, but now it's so mainstream that it's just like purity testing within <laughs> the ranks, right? And um, I don't know. It's uh, and I, I think it is. I think it's like mean, but I think it also means that there is some cultural clout that that. Asians and Koreans specifically have within America where they can police these sorts of things mm-hmm. and they don't just say oh it's great and it's just internally racist people like me and Tammy who are just like oh my god anything that's good for me is good I don't <laughs> you know? know why I'm ripped into this but anyway <laughs> <continue>. <laughs> um, but I like my, my general take on it is that, you know, that they should continue to create this hilarious content that they make <laughs> but they should also like the I, every time I scroll through the Koreaboo hashtag, I just skip over every Asian person because I know they're going to be scolding the Koreaboos, and then I just like watch all the white, black, and Latino kids who are making memes about being Koreaboos. Um, <laughs> because look, you don't have to scold people for being into K-pop or trying to learn Korean. You know, like I don't under this is the same cultural appropriation thing where it's like they're trying to sell it as a cultural product in the United States, right? Like, what is the harm? What's the power imbalance here? Like, what's the harm that's being done through this cultural appropriation? Because I guess it is technically cultural appropriation. I mean, do you see any potential harm in this, hmm. Andy? Um, potential harm. I mean, is it what is interesting? I'm going to dodge the question. What is, it, <laughs> is interesting, though, is that it is like the Korean government that's in control of a lot of this, right? Which is 
does not tend to be the case in a lot of these cultural appropriation phenomenon. Like the, they're the ones kind of, I mean, not that they profit directly, but they are the ones kind of uh, financially or otherwise promoting the spread of like movies and music, right? So they do, in a sense, like Korea gets to control the terms of the of the dissemination of their culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, that, is that fair to say? Yeah, and it's know. like... No? Yeah, it's not as much as it used to be, right? Like, there's, it's not like it's state media, but mm-hmm. I will say that I think that when you have a very wealthy country putting out stuff to the entire world that's super popular and you have a super group that is the world's most popular group... Are they? That, yeah. Oh, for sure. I don't <laughs> think it's close. Um, I don't think that there is the power. There's any sort of power imbalance between them and a 14 year old, no. you know, like like Mexican American kid in, in Los Angeles who's super into BTS. Yeah, yeah no. And there seems to be real and, respect. Like weirdly, over the past few years, I've tutored three lat- young preteen Latinas in Korean because they were obsessed with K-pop. <laughs> Yeah. No way. Yeah, like I really? met them randomly on separate occasions and they were all like basically begged me to like teach them Korean. Whoa. So I did. Um and there was just like respect and curiosity. And there was like a little bit of what you were talking about, Andy, with like the kind of like anime like curiosity crossover. Yeah. But it uh-huh. was something more like engaged than that. It wasn't just like an escapist thing. It was very much like, oh, this is like a portal to this other world and there are values right, embedded right. in that that like are meaningful to me like i feel like yeah. they felt like korea like k-pop was like this world of love and acceptance that they could engage did in do they, they like the fact that they're not you know koreans aren't white and this is like a non-white alternative to yeah you know i the way that it like presented itself to me in their descriptions was they like in the case of these three young latinas they were all like from low-income families mm-hmm. and they never had the opportunity to travel outside of like new york mm-hmm. and new jersey in their cases and Actually, two of them ended up going to Korea. <laughs> mm. So K-pop was like this, just a way of like... Wait, why did they go to Korea? Because they love K-pop and they wanted to go and learn there. Like, they actually oh, really? like applied for scholarships and went. And so it's... To like a hagwon or something to learn Yeah, Korean? it's like a summer program. So I think oh, it's wow. actually this kind of beautiful thing of like, anyone can get excited about any culture and just really love it and truly like want to experience it and you know for them I, don't know. I think it represented this a little bit of like an out but yeah that wasn't kind of like let me go to france you know right i don't know if it's any culture right like this this sounds a lot to me like the japan boom well earlier. that's what the korean government wanted to model right right and but, like korea is projecting itself as, as a successful rich you know not alternative to the west kind of but I guess culture, what I mean though. is, like, they there's no logical thing that would... Yes, I know there are economic forces at play, but there's no logical thing that would predict that this, like, you know, like a Mexican, like, working-class kid would become obsessed mm. with something in Korea. Like, that's super fucking weird to me. I the only, the only other take that I have about all this is that I do think that the racism within this community is very serious and very real. Mm. And that's where I get a little bit annoyed about this sort of... Ex, this uh, this claim that they're now the great anti-racist force in in uh, in America, you know, and mm. across the world. Right. And I do believe I do agree with Ask a Korean that if they were converted into this, that it would be very powerful. <laughs> yeah. But it's been like three months since all those articles <laughs> came out about you know how how racist they the 
army can be and how exclu- like how exclusionary they can be to young Latino and uh, black fans. And I don't think any of that's been fixed just because they did a prank, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. There's too much, there's too, Tammy, you know that I feel this way. I, you don't have, I'm not going to ascribe you to it, but I think there's too much pro Korea propaganda right now. Yeah. You know, like between that and coronavirus Parasite. and Parasite. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like there's uh there's just a little it feels a little bit too Korean nationalist on my timeline from people and you know, like this is like a deeply, deeply racist country and deeply homophobic country yeah. and um and we should not pretend like they're now like the the forefront of what society should look like. Totally. You know, it's still an ethno state, it's still a place where kids of uh and grandkids of of black GIs who went to Korea are treated not as second class citizens, but not as citizens at all. Yeah. And like, this is not a what about thing. It's just like, it's just, I don't think that it's productive to forget all of that because we want to get excited about Korea. That's right. Yeah. Also, because I'm deeply internally racist. <laughs> <laughs> I was just reading an article about this Angolan family that was made by the Korean government to live in the airport for like 11 months because they wouldn't process their refugee application. And Korea is one of the least, has one of the uh, lowest rates of refugee admins in the world. So, you know, very much so. This is, this is the ethnostate part is right. I, I appreciate, I think, this podcast space because we had started, like, thinking about how much better Asia did during the coronavirus. But we were always careful to kind of, like, hedge each other's nationalisms. And there, it, that was, like, a seductive moment to feel nationalistic, I think. But it's like super yeah. wrong. Tammy, um, Andy, like what? What is a you know? We've had these protests now going on for I think more than three weeks. Like, how, what? What? What's the situation like in your cities, Philadelphia and New York? Like, how, how? How's it looking? I. It's still pretty active here in New York, and this morning, actually, just before this podcast, I went to a housing protest outside of housing court to protest the re. The reopening of eviction proceedings, which have been temporarily stalled, uh, but now with the soft reopening of society, they're reopening court and will allow landlords to continue evicting people. So we were protesting that, but you could see how the Black Lives Matter stuff kind of inflected the housing protests and vice versa. You know, again, I think as we've talked about before, like I do feel like there's a really strong economic component in the Black Lives Matter protests this round. And conversely, that in economic protests like around housing, which had been started because of the coronavirus, um, you know, we're seeing like recognition of like black lives being most impacted by eviction proceedings. So, so you did see that? I did see that. Were, yeah. Were there a lot of people there? There were, there were a fair number of people. Yeah. I mean, it's 830 on a Monday morning. <laughs> so it, you know, had to be people who could make that. But it was a super... Um, you know, multiracial crowd with lots of different people from different neighborhoods in Brooklyn. So I felt good about that. And also on Juneteenth, um, my neighborhood was, we were supposed to have like a vigil for black lives, but it ended up being more of a party. And I felt okay about that too. So I would say like the protests are continuing to occur, but to evolve. And it's not the same feeling as it was in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Andy, what about you? I I saw a video in South Philadelphia of 
these uh, oh, yeah. Italian Americans fighting these uh, protesters, and oh, I watched God. every single video because it was about a Columbus thing. But I found it strangely edifying because in the moments where they weren't fighting, like physically fighting, they were having these really intense conversations that I actually found to be totally fascinating and productive. But, you know, I, and my brain is melted. You know, I'm sure everyone else is horrified by them. And I was like, no, they're getting somewhere. <laughs> hey, what's it like in Philly? Yeah, no, those are super interesting. Um, I haven't actually been out the last week. There's a big one tomorrow that's going to... There's, like, several issues. One is, like socialist one when there's like a more explicitly black lives matter one that there's starting in different neighborhoods and meeting in the middle west philly and south philly and south philly is the neighborhood that you just mentioned jay that famously is like um originally mostly for kind of working class italian americans and those videos came from i think really like deep far like talking to my friends we weren't even sure where that park is because it's so far away from where a lot of us live gentrified you know center city area um those are interesting also i think i mean it's easy to feel horrified at whatever but if you just kind of like stick around and watch the videos um it is i don't know it is interesting to kind of like hear the 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 neighbor the people at the neighborhood kind of air their grievances yeah no that's i that's how i felt you know like you know you see one where a guy is saying really absurd kind of trump tweet type stuff but then he just says, I grew up in this neighborhood, you know, and right. everyone here grew up in this neighborhood. And they're, these are not wealthy people by right. any means. Wait, so and what do they say? Of, like, where do they get in the conversation? Well, they say that, that I, I, the sense that I get, and this is being extremely charitable to mm-hmm. them, I think that most, you know, um, is that this park that they all meet in is like the one place that that group of you know, Italian-Americans who are mostly working class used to meet. And that tearing down the statue in that in that area because of you know this moment is desecrating their neighborhood and you know they're also under pressure from gentrification and everything like that that Andy talked about in Philly and that they're also being displaced and I don't I don't look if I had to pick a side I would just be like tear down the statue you know mm-hmm. but I would also I, I I just found it I just found it interesting because it's the first it's the first clash where it's not the cops. Versus protesters, right? Which is very easy to delineate where you want to fall on the line. These are not these are not rich people, you know. Like it's not it's not the people who show up for these anti-mask protests or anything like that, right? Like this, it did seem it did feel like it was the actual neighborhood that showed up, which was the interesting part to me. Jay, you were in Oakland and you saw Angela Davis. How was that? Uh, yeah, well, that was the, I went to the Port of Oakland where the ILWU held a. Uh, work stoppage for that day and um there's several thousand people there angela davis was there um she it was funny because you know she to help protect her against coronavirus they put her in her her car she drives like a mini cooper (laughs) and so she was she was standing in the middle of this crowd out the sunroof of a mini cooper yeah and like you know it was you see all these people young people starting to who obviously idolize her in this sort of way but it was it was cool. I went with my wife and I went with one of my friends and uh I think that it was the first one of these actions I've been to that was labor, yeah, right? That was cool. organized by labor and it felt very different. And um my wife has now been to two. She went to the SEIU one in Oakland as nice. well. And um she is 
much more into the labor ones because she says they're great speakers they're more organized you know it's not just people walking around in a circle there's a real message but the thing that i want to talk to you guys about about this that i found totally fascinating was that you know angela davis obviously is an internationalist right Uh for sure believes in in uh international solidarity and that and i've always i've been trying to figure out over the past couple weeks where that fits within this particular moment, right? Mm -hmm. Is there, does it fit within the moment at all? And one of the things that happened at this protest that I thought was totally interesting was the person that they had speak before Angela Davis was a wonderful speaker, but he was talking about these ships that are marooned in the middle of the ocean that have mostly Bangladeshi and Filipino workers on there who are going through horrible times, right? They've been stranded for months on these ships. Some of them are committing suicide. They don't know if they're ever going to get off the ship and the ship can't come to port because nobody wants to take them because they have coronavirus cases and it's kind of like that naval ship right where you're just marooned and people don't know what to do so they're basically just floating around in circles and this speaker's exhortation was completely internationalist you know it was just we should also care about the workers who are on these ships and uh and i don't know you know for the young people who i think were in the crowd i think that they it wasn't that they were not open to this idea. It was just they had never thought about it in that mm-hmm. sort of way. And I do think, and I think that they were totally into it once they yeah. thought about it, right? Yeah. Like that, that this, is a, this is a struggle. And it made me think that the potential for labor in all this is amazing because there is this whole playbook that they can use that you know, might feel kind of rote to people who are used to it. Mm-hmm that it's going to be totally mind-blowing to, to young people who have learned to tune out labor for the past 20 years or 10 years, however long they've been alive and cognizant of this sort of stuff. Um, but I don't know. Angela Davis is much more visible than she's ever been. And every time I see her, she talks about, about you know, like international solidarity. And I found it to be very heartening in that sort of way. And also heartening because you see all these young people and, you know, like this is, like, this is their new hero. You know, like, I don't think there could have been a person, including Beyonce or, <laughs> or you know, like, Justin Timberlake or whoever who could have been that would have made a bigger impact on them. So cool. That does feel new to me. So you felt that, like, just kind of the vibe you got from the young people around you where they were, like, a light bulb went off around the international piece? They just seemed kind of jazzed by that? Or? Yeah, they didn't tune it out, okay. right? They're yeah, still engaged with it. And... uh and they did not, there was no like, well, what are, why are we talking about these people? Gotcha. You know, why are we talking about Filipino workers, yeah. on, you know, in the, in the Indian Ocean mm-hmm. um, who are floating around? I don't know. I feel like the younger people are, the more open they are to this stuff. They've only grown up in a world of globalization and hearing about sweatshops and, you know, all this stuff. Are you, wait, so are you saying the people whose minds were open, they were not necessarily in labor? They were not like union members. They were just like participants in the latest programs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there were there were, obviously labor did show up there, but they, the majority of people are just young, yeah. you know, very multicultural Oakland yeah. kids, and that was the thing that I thought was compelling was that in a place, look, Oakland is a very specific place, right? Yeah. It is a extremely diverse place, and the kids are grow up going to these protests, and it's not anything new to them. Right. And they're more activist bent than you might find in other cities, including, you know, like Philadelphia or yeah. New York City yeah, or definitely. Boston. Yeah. And, but for those kids, 
they've grown up their entire lives around tons of people from different countries, right? Sure, like yeah. especially that generation. Um, and while Oakland is getting whiter, it's also getting more Asian. It's getting, you know, there's a lot of Latino people, obviously. And I think that it was, you know, like, I think they're, that it's just there. Like they, they just pick it up, yeah. you know, like, of course this is important because they know people who are like that and it's not abstract to them. Yeah. Um, do you think people in Oakland are aware, like they're like the busiest port in the United States or one of the busiest and they are like the connection to the global economy or do they think it's they don't think about the ports at all no i didn't know that until sunday <laughs> <laughs> or, or friday, yeah, I didn't know that until friday. The, the way i learned about it was the head of the ilwu local 10 or whatever yeah. <laughs> well there was that whole like coronavirus ship that had docked there right that had to be processed in yeah, military yeah, base yeah is yeah, it like yeah. shanghai to oakland or i think shanghai to oakland or shanghai to la that is the global economy right there for sure like in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, doing an entire West coast shutdown from Bellingham, Washington, all the way down to San Diego is massively disruptive. And I don't, I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't want, I think that there is a lot of arguments to be made that, you know, the sort of decentralized and leaderless and non-structured movement that is going on is good. But I also find the other side to be extremely compelling just because, you know, at some point, Tammy, as you said, some new shape has to come out of all of this, yeah. right? Yeah. Like some, some idea has to, not to, you know, obvious, not the idea, you know, to cite <laughs> obvious, <laughs> we don't have to go down, but some idea has to come out, right? And um, I don't know, like the, I think something like the ILWU, if it's supported by Angela Davis, is an, is an amazing place to start. Uh, and I do think it started. And that was very cool and edifying to watch, at least for me. I, Annie, like you, you, you're actually very steeped in this sort of stuff, or at least think about it a lot. Like, do you think that? Do you think that there can be an international well, that, uh, component to this movement? That's what I was saying. I think I don't know how much that exists in all parts of the United States, but in a place like Oakland, it would make more sense because of its uh, position, mm-hmm. right, within the larger global economy. Like once, uh, so like. You know, the connection between East Asia and the West Coast United States is like, that's what the global economy has shifted there over the last few decades. And so if you do, um, if these unions come up with a plan to block it, right, that they're using their strategic position to their advantage. I don't, and they could, they could think about like, you know, our comrades on the other side of the ocean. Yeah. I don't know if that's true of the rest of the United States. Um, and I do think about a lot of this stuff, but usually like 150 years ago. So, <laughs> but, um, so yeah, I don't want to I don't want to speak out of turn, but that does it does seem like it's going to be place dependent, right? And it's going to be like would it have worked in Shenzhen in 1850? <laughs> yeah. uh, it wasn't called that back then. I don't right. I don't know if like Kansas I don't know what international connections Kansas has, for instance. Um, well, can, the, you don't think the farming and the Chinese, uh, you know, the Chinese and the Chinese are control over farming in yeah, the for Midwest? Sure. Or you guys saw that film American Factory? Or no yeah. longer yeah. film, right? Where it's like a former GM plant becomes a Chinese-owned plant in Dayton, Ohio. Those are all connected in a way, but um, I don't know. I mean, it, it kind of takes a. I don't know. I don't know what the, the what the formula is to convert that into political. You know, Was, wasn't classic. it the film where like they won an award and the director said at the end of her speech she said, 
international workers of the world yes. unite. Is she really? I think that yeah, is the, the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. we're like, the film produced is... by the Obamas? Weird. I know. <laughs> the film itself is quite ambiguous. I, I thought it was doing... No, no. She she was like, international workers right. of the world unite in that in that type of thing. Yeah. It was... It was a wild moment. Um, well, I think. Yeah, and, I, I'm, I, and Tammy, what well, do you think? I think what you, you were pointing to, potential? like highlighting the longshoremen, is really interesting because not all of our listeners may know, but the Longshoremen's Union is one of the most radical in American labor history. It has had the deepest and longest running communist roots, and the sort of pipe, the corridor that Jay pointed out from Washington State down to the tip of California has been one of the mainstays of labor radicalism, and. I guess I keep thinking about something that Mike Davis said on this show, which is that international solidarity has to be organized and learned in a disciplined way. Because unlike domestic labor radicalism and organizing, it's not something you necessarily feel and see every single day, like what Andy was saying, depending on where you are. And so what this kind of moment opens up for me and is making me think a lot about is what can we do in organizations that we're already a part of or adjacent to, to make these ideas stick? And you know, I think if we think about the better unions, the more progressive and left-wing unions gaining power in this moment, because we're already seeing, for instance, like in mainstream media, a lot of coverage of questioning of police unions, questioning of other sorts of yeah. law enforcement unions. You know, that's another way of saying, like, could there be room for unions like the Longshoremen or, you know, the garment, old garment workers unions or the service worker unions to fill a role to, like, lead so that it's not always just like the uniformed people that we're mm-hmm. talking about in the labor movement. So that, I think that's what we're going to have to, we, we need that. We need discipline and we need structure to make this, you know, move forward. And I don't know if Davis or the union had any suggestions at that rally, Jay, even of like, sure, we can say, yeah, international solidarity with these workers who are stuck on a cargo ship in the middle of water. But what do we do about that? I, I think that they do have this moment, though, because they have that fight. And let's be honest, you know, like all the young people who go out there, they see like, uh, you know, they see old labor radicals screaming stuff like, you know, if there's two workers left on the dock, one will be white and one will be black, you know, and they all start like, it's very romantic. It's very powerful. And I mean, I found myself caught up in it. Uh, And I do think it's a moment where they could lead and that they could provide a lot of manpower and a lot of organization that isn't there right now because I do think there is a frustration that is building that there's that we're in week three and a lot of the actions are still let's go walk around in a circle right and so people either want let's go smash some stuff you know let's burn some stuff down or they want let's get this thing more organized around a central idea and uh, I don't know if that's going to happen without some intervention from labor um, but I don't know how much labor wants to get into it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, because they have this huge fight where with the port. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay, last part, and you know, uh, is uh, I wanted all of us to read White Fragility. <laughs> it is the is it still the number one uh, bestseller in the in in America? It's definitely one of them, right? It's it's been okay. So, the latest what? Is, but yeah. Who who is this Robin D'Angelo woman who wrote this book? Who who of you among you has done the? I go look it up. Yeah, she's a sociologist who does sort of diversity trainings and seminars. Yeah, and the she the like, sort of the. Right? I, is it fair to say that she's 
one of the figureheads of the diversity bureaucracy <laughs> in America. I think so. Is that... Oh, well, yeah. Okay. It is the number one New York weeks. Times uh, uh, book at this point, by the weeks on the list. But I, they might be counting the first time it came out, right? Um, okay. Okay, Tammy, what did you think of this book? So I, I will admit that I didn't read all of it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I made it through about 35%. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I have to say it was it was better written than I thought it would be. So just like at the sentence level, like, bravo, Robin. Um, I found it... <laughs> I found it difficult to um, I found it difficult to stick with and a little bit cloying, but it also wasn't written for us. It's written for white people and white progressives. I think like a main yeah. kernel of truth she says early on in the book is that in some ways at an individual level or rhetorical level, white progressives are the biggest threat to the sort of like appropriate racial thinking, <laughs> which is something we yeah. talked about on the show. So I'd love to hear what you guys think about that. But um I feel like this is a book that I would give like a really well-meaning teacher I had like in high school. Oh, interesting. So like it's somebody who really wanted racism to end, but had not freed her mind or his mind. Basically. Yeah. And when uh, then like be given concrete And just needed tools. a little bit of structure. Exactly. Yeah, or tools. And then could say to their yeah. white students like, oh, have you ever thought about this? So that's a that's a positive yeah. review. I'm trying. I'm trying. Andy, Andy, what what did you think of this book? Yeah, I think the book can't be separated from the uh, intended goal, which is to have seminars at right. private corporations <laughs> or maybe government institutions, maybe about how to be less racist. So, what struck me the most was that every once in a while she would actually have some pretty interesting analysis of like the big picture, right? Like wealth inequality housing segregation, et cetera. But then it gets all filtered down into these very soft solutions about right. changing your mind and um, having a different mindset, which, um, you know, I think we all probably agree, like, you can do all that you want, but unless you change the bigger, like, physical or economic um, divides in, the, in, in America, then racism, that doesn't solve, that doesn't get at, like, the heart of racism, right? So on the one hand, you could say, like, I could criticize her for not following through with her analysis. On the other hand, her analysis, her goal from the beginning is exactly. not to really rock the boat, yeah. but just to help white, basically white people who hire other people um, do a better job with yeah. their biases. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a blueprint to make your diversity training more useful and less uh, terrible and just about white people getting mad and having the same circular conversations over and over again, and it's trying to get them to a different space in that. Um, yeah, I, I agree with the two of you that you can't separate it from the goal of the book, which is just to try and get white people from point A to point A, point two, you know, <laughs> or like, <laughs> which I think is important. And I think her general analysis that white progressives are the biggest impediment um, towards liberation is probably right you know like i don't think it's trump supporters i think it's just kind of bullshit white liberals uh who like nimbies for example you know and she's trying to who might have certain calcified thoughts and she's just trying to push them a little mm -hmm. bit but yeah obviously look i mean i don't find her analysis of this or her solutions to be particularly interesting which is that i don't think that having white people do deep examinations of themselves is going to yield anything except for super cringy stuff you know yeah. 
Like when I was in Park Slope, I would, you know, my kid, I, my, I would go pick up my kid, but I would always get there a little too early, and I would go sit in these coffee shops in Park Slope. And it was around the time when the parents of like the very, uh, you know, the very prestigious pub, public elementary school would get out with their kids, and they'd be sitting in these pizza parlors and these coffee shops, and they would they would have a lot of these conversations about anti-racism. And it oh was God. like it was like mind blowing to me, you know. It's like what did they say? <laughs> you've never heard the word African American yeah. more, you I know. Or they're like, well, <laughs> you know, your African American classmate, but and it's all well intentioned, and I think it's all for the betterment of society. But it is this self, and we've discussed this before within the context of Asians, which is just it's this self-flagellating uh, penance. And that's all it is, you know, and that's that, that's kind of how I felt about this book, which is that it is a clarifying how to do these sorts of penance politics. Mm. OK, so I did have an assignment that Tammy ignored, but that's OK, <laughs> because Tammy has been very helpful within this podcast. Um, we're going to read two sections of this. Andy, why don't you go first? Uh, we, we're going to read from the okay. book and we're going to discuss the passage from the book. OK, I believe this is chapter four. I've read on my um kindle without page numbers sorry but uh i think it's chapter four the subheading is called belonging i'll just read two lines i was born into a culture in which i belonged racially indeed the forces of racism were shaping me even before i took my first breath hmm. she that's her hmm. speaking right okay yeah right but i, I kind of think this chapter is written in a quasi-ironic voice where she's oh speaking like for the average white oh. person is that and, ironic though <laughs> Or mild distance, oh, okay, I don't know. Yeah. like giving a voice. Oh yeah, to okay, me. I see. Yep, yep, yep. Um, uh, so I, I mean, do you want me to talk, or do you guys want to react to what I just said? Uh, why don't you talk? <laughs> <laughs> well, what struck me was I think this whole chapter in particular speaks about. I think the, a lot of the book speaks about um, these abstract isms like whiteness. Oh, not ism, <laughs> racism, whiteness. As these, um, as these things that have a life of their own, and are just like kind of they're in the air. She uses a water metaphor, I think, at one point, like it's like it's like water. Uh, in this case, she's talking about it like it's like it's literally in the air. Like the first breath she took was a breath of racist air, um, and that it like predates her. Like she was, uh, she had no choice but to be like born a racist be, by be, by virtue of being a white person, yeah. right? And I think that gets at kind of your penance um, point, Jay. And also, the thing that I was also fixating on was that uh, racism, whiteness, these are all abstractions that are given a life of their own throughout this. And, um, you know, one thing uh, I was kind of pointing out also in the post that I wrote this week was that if we give racism a life of its own, we tend to actually... that I think that can be self-defeating because uh, race as an ideology wants you to believe that it's real and it kind of exists almost scientifically um, regardless of like what individuals think and how they act um, and if, if you start treating racism like it's this thing out there right that predates me and I'm all I'm doing is like being swept along by the tide of this thing called racism then it makes it very difficult to conceptualize how could you ever how, how how could you ever deal with it? Yeah, how, how does um, that how does that how does that interact though with the arguments that are being made right now by a lot of black writers in things like the sixteen nineteen project, um, right, and sure. about how uh, there is you know racism 
since 1619 and you know violence against black people is the you know is is the ever present narrative of america because right. it seems like it fits into that right like it seems like what she's saying fits into that it's in the same language it's in the same it's the same argument do you think right. it, do you think it is the same argument or that they're yeah they're cousins think, at least yeah there's a bizarre um sort of um affinity between that sort of afro-pessimism argument and then the sort of white liberal kind of self-flagellation argument that there's this oppressive thing that's just kind of in the air and in the water that's called racism and whiteness and anti-blackness and um in a, in a way it's like it doesn't change over time yeah yeah i don't and i don't really have a conclusion to make except that i do think it's better for white people to maybe think these things through but i also think that doing it in such a bureaucratic way is really counterproductive in some ways i mean because you, you think about this where what's going to happen out of this moment like for example within the academy andy where you work because i think about this quite a bit as well yeah. which is that the offices of the you know office of diversity and inclusion are all going to get big uh budget bumps right the university can only deal with things in a corporate bureaucratic way and so they're going to hire more people and those people are going to send out emails and everything like that and i, I just remember there's this piece i did for vice and it was about the University of Maryland, and it was. Do you remember when this like this horrible incident where this guy got stabbed on campus, and like it was pretty. It, it was just this random stabbing, and the guy who stabbed him was had a lot of white nationalist ties to it. Um, okay, well, so this happened at the University of Maryland, and um, it really caused a rift in campus. And the university's response is to make a blue ribbon panel, you know, and to right. put more money into the ODI. And so we went and we talked to some of the students on campus. And, you know, the black students, almost almost all of them said that they had no real connection with the ODI, you know, that they got emails and mm. they did a workshop yeah. once a year and they didn't know what the ODI was there for. That's Office of Diversity and, right. and Inclusion. Office of Diversity and Inclusion, right? And so... That's how I felt in college, too, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, there's just like a bureaucratic buildup of things like this that you know where they would have white professors all read white fragility and go through this playbook and i don't know if that's the right response in this in this uh moment but i also think it's the inevitable response in this moment and that is like i'm very optimistic about what's going on but the times when i get depressed about it is when i think maybe the only response that we know how to do is this type of response hmm. um, and that's where i think that actual criticism of white fragility is interesting because of, you know, Andy, as you pointed out at the beginning, it is just about, it is just about diversity seminars, right? I think the first yeah. anecdote in the book is about a diversity seminar. Yeah. Yeah. So for the most part, like certain solutions are ruled out in advance, right? Right. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. So. Like smashing capitalism is not <laughs> no. smashing not statues do you guys think yeah. that i mean i i feel like this is the book that people who are afraid of ibram x kendi's name are gonna read mm. right because he's mm. like he's in stamped from the beginning and then like how to be an anti-racist he's essentially doing a similar thing that she is but he's black and has like yeah. a very afrocentric analysis of like our history and i think he does it better and i think i would rather have people read that 
But maybe yeah. this is like, do you guys think this could be like a starting point and then the next book they read after this is him and then the next book they read after that is like David Blight and Paul Gilroy and Barbara Fields. You know, like in other words, can we move people along? <laughs> <a lot? laughs> like, well, Ibram Max Kendi's books are number two and number three on the bestseller exactly. list, right? So I so. think it's in, like they're all kind of like the books that are being recommended by like Apple HR. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, so the but the jump the jump from white fragility to how to be an anti racist to reading Barbara Fields. Hey, I, like, I did put David Blight and Paul Gilroy. I think there's maybe seventy. <laughs> I think there's seventy steps in between. In between there. Yeah, um, but yeah. no, yeah. I, I, it's a good question, Tammy. But you um, take my point, like can yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bestseller list, uh, kind of like podcast downloads, right? We don't know if people are actually reading it, right? It's just like, does the company? Well, they're buying buy the copy for them yeah i mean they, this whatever, is based on purchases it? so like, yeah but i think you know that's true about all books I, let, let's assume that people are some people are reading these books <laughs> yeah. i do see what you're saying andy that maybe like a yeah. company is putting it on a list and all their employees have to buy it right. but um uh, one, one thing that jo- oh, go ahead no no go ahead yep i think this kind of gets on something you were saying earlier I, there's something the way, about the way she talks about how like white liberals are the main problem and the way she was kind of describing like what it's like to be white versus not white was like kind of crazy to mm. me. She was like, all white people have a really good life. And this is something that no non-white person, no person of color could ever understand. And I'm like, hold on. Like, I know a lot of white people probably don't like their life. <laughs> Wait, and, but she does talk uh, about poor whites and she says she herself grew up in poverty. So she doesn't elide but then she's, that. But then in, or, in order to say like it's almost better to be poor, a poor white person than a rich black person. Right? Well, like she... I think her, I think her message was even if even though I was poor, it's still great to be white. Well, and the interesting thing is that she doesn't really say black and white. She uses people of color right. all the time. Yeah. She uses POC, that's and that's where I'm just like, okay, look, uh, I would not trade my life to be an extremely poor white person ever. You know, like right. like the, it's not it's not the same. Like the the there's a there's a, just a lot of nuance that gets pulled out because of that phrase, people of color. And, yeah. Yeah. and she lists as person of color Marco Rubio. I, I like, know. Oh. oh my God, I noticed that too. That was horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the question we're circling around here is uh, one that I think is central to this podcast and one that we are discussing. We want to keep discussing because I think it's the one that is impactful. Does it really is right now? I do think that in the mainstream that the main thought of anti-racism is personal you know it's psychological mm-hmm. it's how do we undo the racism in our own minds right and andy i know you're a big skeptic of this so i'll let you answer first <laughs> but i mean do you like it, are we like should we be past this at this point like is it is this personalization of racism within the soul of the of the individual human being and that and that <laughs> sort of the vert not to use like a this term but you know the virtuous signals that one puts out that that they are not racist is this is this really the response that we want at this moment there it's not there's a lot of people who've written this history which i confess i've bought the books and downloaded the articles i haven't read them fully but there was a shift in american the way americans talk about racism Uh, and sometime around after world war ii instead of talking about things like segregation and slavery and jim crow there was a shift from structure to personal responsibility um, which cuts both ways right it's both uh, black people are poor because they're you know lazy and it's their own personal fault. But then it's also um, to solve racism, we have to look within ourselves, right? So they're kind of like mirror images mm-hmm. of each other, but both of them are trying to look away from 
the structure. And I don't know why that's the case. I don't know, you know, if it's, you know, you can make this broader argument about like neoliberalism and the sort of de, what's the word, like not, I guess decentralization or sort of um, devolution of like large institutions and kind of, you know, placing the emphasis upon individuals above all else. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would like to move move on from this, Jay, but it does seem like it's actually part and parcel of a broader pattern of the way we think about the world, right? Instead of, you know, the 20th century is all about big structures, big governments, big corporations. These days it's all about individual responsibility, um, fast, lean, flexible co companies, startups, right? Like, um, and we might be seeing the beginning of a shift away from that, you know, like Green New Deal and all that, but um, I think the fact that we think about racism in individual terms is kind of a symptom of a larger shift um, of thinking. Is it getting is it getting stronger? I mean, you know, like the New York Times book bestseller list is one thing, right? <laughs> but I do think that uh, I, I think it's an indicator of some things and an in, not an indicator of a lot of things. But uh, we are at a moment where there's great changes in consciousness and people are waking up. But the thing that they're waking up to is, is it just more of this personal responsibility stuff? I think, but I, I, yeah, I mean, who knows? I don't, we don't want to make predictions necessarily, but it does seem like it's more visible than I can recall in my lifetime, you know, short lifetime, uh, that the problems with that narrative are on the table, mm. right? that, that the government should, I mean, it might just because the Trump government is so bad, right? But that the government should do more, that yeah. it is wrong that corporations have hoarded all this wealth. Um, and that we don't have like a higher tax rate for wealthy people and um, and that the police have um, you know they have such huge budgets at the expense of social welfare uh, institutions so you know who knows it might just be a blip in the radar and we're just going to keep you know uh, declining and going into hell but um, <laughs> it, it does seem like there are, there's stuff on the table to, to suggest that um, governments and institutions should take greater responsibility Tammy, what do you think? At the beginning, you said that you felt like there was more of an economic uh, angle and a more of an economic discussion going around during this wave than there were in 2016 and 2014. Yeah, and I think I have a slightly different historical reading than Andy, which is actually think like this individual responsibility thing is a product stemming from the late 70s into the present. And, and we actually are potentially at a point where we can offer a corrective to that, despite the existence of this D'Angelo book. But, you know, I think like it's a Reaganite moment, right, that breeds this. And also coming out, it even comes out of like our jurisprudence around affirmative action, like that kind of diversity moment where we basically rationalize all of the, the goods that diversity presents are for white people, right, and to groom our workforce, et cetera, et cetera, as we see in the Supreme Court decisions. And I think now, like, we're kind of questioning all of that. So I, I'm actually, like, somewhat hopeful about rejecting that and, and having a more of a systemic analysis. I think that ever since 2008 crash and then Occupy and Black Lives Matter and all of these movements that we've been seeing, like, that is all part of a questioning of this sort of individualistic status quo. So, you know, yeah, I'm hopeful yeah. about these last decade, this last 12 years. Yeah, I, I think that they can exist in parallel. And I, the thing that I can't quite figure out, and I think is going to be the question, at least for me throughout this whole, th these next few months, is whether or not uh, to try and achieve the vision of racial justice that I think the three of us agree is the right, is right, you know, which is economic justice, which is destroying structures that, 
that lead to racial inequality over and over again, like, do we also have to destroy the diversity and inclusion uh, apparatus and, and that type of conversation? Like, does, mm. does, does Robin D'Angelo have to go, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know the answer to that because, you know, my inclination yeah. is to say no. Uh, I hope it's no. Right. Because I don't think that Robin D'Angelo is like in any ways a bad person. I don't <laughs> no. think she is a narcissist. I don't I mean, she might be a narcissist. I don't know her personally, but I don't think that she I think that she all, all of her intentions are correct and that she believes that through these types of big institutions and big corporate settings that you can affect the most change. I just happen to disagree with it, but I do think it is at odds to have this highly personalized vision of it that goes through existing bureaucracies and in a lot of ways aims to absolve them of their of their actual problems, right? If you have diversity uh, trainings at a housing developer in the East Bay, right, and then you say, "Well, we did all these ha- we did all these diversity initiatives, but we're still going to be building luxury housing throughout this area and 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 displacing people," then, what, then you exactly. haven't accomplished anything, right? And so, um, I don't know. Like my, I do think that at some point that this is all going to come to a head, and that'll come to a head in a very ugly way and I think it'll be a central question of whether or not the messaging around this movement is anathema to solidarity and coalitions Mm. if it is just about well you're a white ally you're not you know a protester uh you have to know your place as a white ally don't talk about you know x y and z we have to focus on on George Floyd or we have to focus on Black Lives Matter um, yeah. I think as those conflicts continue, because I know that a lot of the, you know, the radical left and <laughs> to use Trump's phrase, but, uh, you know, a lot of <laughs> radicals on the left and a lot of uh, and a lot of people who are, are, are going to start doing more occupations are going to start doing things that are not centered in, exclusively around around police violence to against black people. And I know also that Latinos right now, if you saw in Compton yesterday, are, are like Mexican Americans in Los Angeles are also doing marches, you know, and, and I, mm. you can hear a subtext within their comments right now about why do our police shootings not matter as much. Mm. And I think that all of that mm. will come to a head. And I think at that point, that's when we'll have a big drawn out debate about whether or not this personalized and uh, like, is this personalized type of politics actually anathema to solidarity in coalition building yeah and i think someone like angela davis would maybe quietly say yes you know for sure um or maybe not even quietly maybe she would just say (laughs) yes and that'll that'll be the i think that'll be an inflection point and i know what side i'll be on on that on that inflection point but um but i think it'll be really really ugly because it will Hmm involve having to end this deference politics where some people feel like they can't speak at all you know because and does that seem this is a conspiracy that or borderline conspiracy thing that i've cooked up in my brain over the last four days i think i think what i keep coming back to is this idea that i don't know if a lot of the stuff on my fragility would fly with younger people Mm. like let's just like make our age the cutoff I think white fragility would resonate more with people older than us, mm-hmm. probably because they are the CEOs and making the hiring <laughs> decisions. But I think a lot of the critiques of, you know, crudely identity politics has been floating around for a while and has kind yeah. of seeped into the young, <laughs> the youth. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, maybe this could bring us all the way back to the BTS stance. Like, I do kind of <laughs> think a lot of this stuff is, um, I think, 
I think the youth are just like, if anything, they're just kind of sick and tired of this stuff. Yeah, it might be. It might be more yeah, open to what we are. You know, what our crit- our criticisms. But you know, maybe they don't know what to um, where to locate themselves instead. I, I'm I'm with you. That's what something Mike Davis said. Remember, like he was talking about yeah. how his daughters and her friends are basically they don't like these debates that we have about identity politics versus like racial justice doesn't even occur to them right they can't even see it yeah they're just like what are you talking about why would we do this like corny shit and and we're like listen we have to give it its proper respect and they just don't think that i think i've I've found that to be true at the protests that i've been to you know that there is not this neurosis about all of this and i wonder if it is a generational thing and that, thank God, maybe some of it will yeah. pass, you know, yeah. when um, when we get into our 60s or something like that. <laughs> or when young, when this generation starts to really find a foothold in mass messaging, which I guess they already have, you know, but uh, yeah. that that might undo some of this. And also, you know, the other thing I think is just because of the coronavirus, this is really a youth-led movement yeah. because it's mostly teens and young people who don't really care if they get sick. Totally. <laughs> um, anyone over the age of 50 is not, you know, like it, they're taking a big risk being there, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they, people should be very respectful of that. So, um, what was your passage, I know, I, Jay? Did you have one? For... My what? Did, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. No, I, didn't I was mind. just curious. If... Okay. This is similar. Um, this is from page I don't know. It's towards the end of the end of the book. I picked one from the end of the book because I didn't want us to all pick one from the beginning of the book and make it obvious that we didn't read the whole thing. But I did some skipping around and I found that it's like one of these books where every page just feels like the next page, you know, like it's all the same thing. So what are some things I can do or remember when my white fragility surfaces? There are several constructive responses we can have in the moment. One, breathe. Two, listen. Three, reflect. Four, return to the list of underlying assumptions in this chapter. Five, (laughs) seek out someone with a stronger analysis if you feel confused. Six, take the time you need to process your feelings, but do return to the situation and the persons involved. Um, We can interpret our, or we can interrupt our white fragility and build our capacity to sustain cross-racial honesty by being willing to tolerate the discomfort associated with an honest appraisal and discussion of our internalized superiority and racial privilege. I think we've sort of discussed around this, but the reason why I picked that one was just this idea, like, do you really think that a, that conversations matter? <laughs> but do they matter? Like, does it? They does... can, I don't know. It depends on the people. I, I do think, I mean, are you suggesting like change happens when you actually just like go out in the world and like befriend a bunch of people who aren't, who aren't white and that'll change your mind more than talking to another white um, guru? Or like these really uncomfortable conversations that we have all sat through, right? In one of these uh, bureaucratized, institutionalized settings where um, somebody says uh, their truth, and then another, and then somebody re- responds, you know, intensely, and then there is some sort of resolution that comes out of it. Um, like I, I just don't know if it if it does anything. It sort of conflict, you know. It's similar to what we were talking about, Andy at the beginning in the Philadelphia mm-hmm. at the statue protest where 
I genuinely think that the people who were protecting the statue were speaking from the heart, you know, like, and it, I don't think it was, I don't think it was reactionary racism. I think that they are attached to that park and they are worried about being displaced from that neighborhood. And they do feel a yeah. connection with being Italian American in South Philadelphia. Now you can make fun of that all you want, you know, right. but I think it's sincere. Yeah. Um, and does it, does that conversation like, you know, does it, does it lead to any sort of resolution? You seemed hopeful about it. In that, even in that Philadelphia context, no? Yeah, but, uh, they, they, okay, I'll, I'll add another c- condition here. Like, I love stuff like that at protests, and that's generally why I go, because <laughs> I like seeing people, like, really, you know, like, really come out. Yeah. Um, but I wonder within the, within the institutionalized setting if it matters. I see. I, like, does it matter when it's part of a diversity initiative where everyone kind of knows that they're there to do that? Right. I mean, I've sat through a number of diversity or racial justice type retreats, and I generally find them very painful and filled with exercises that really don't mean anything. But occasionally there'll be like a glimmer from somebody. But what I, I mean, I think my, I guess, laborite response to this is like actual change in these with regards to racism and sexism and other sorts of phobias and hatreds, like actually the change actually occurs in struggle, just such a cheesy organizer answer, but like for people who have done any kind of like worker organizing or housing organizing, like you organize with racist people and you organize with sexist Mm -hmm. pigs because they're your neighbors and your coworkers and you have no fucking choice and people change and you, you can see that. And also you may not like everybody, but you still have to organize with them and identify like what you have shared. So I, you yeah. know, I believe that. I believe that it's like context-driven and not in the artificial context of a diversity retreat, but in your life. Mm. This is sort of like the Joe Rogan question, right? Like, huh? <laughs> what's, what's the Joe Rogan question? <laughs> yeah. Is the burn like should you support? Oh, oh. You know, does the Bernie Coalition have enough space for Joe Rogans? Oh, oh yeah 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 or 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 it's a similar i think or like does it matter if you're doing housing organizing you know versus all working together at nike or at the new york times or at uh or at you know like some startup right like does that if you're if, if your goal together is to make somebody a lot of money who's not you right and to make your your company work better is that different than housing organizing or 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 labor organizing yeah yeah i think it's different (laughs) yeah yeah and i i think that that sort of i think that the concept of struggle is very difficult within a corporate setting yes or even or even an academic institutional setting yeah right oh yeah Um, yeah yeah. yeah. and then like the audiences for this book would be they're not the place. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And that those difficult conversations will happen organically without this book. Right. And that, I hope so. but there's more capaciousness, I think yeah. Yeah. within those types of struggle moments where people are much more willing to be like, okay. Whereas I think that within the diversity corporate moments, it tends to lead to like a deferential, like the point is to make certain, you know, it's to make the white people deferential for a moment. Basically. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and what I found having gone through a few of these moments myself is that for a couple of weeks, it leads to everyone being really uncomfortable and like four or five white people being like super about it, which makes me uncomfortable. You know, I'm just like, <laughs> like come on. Like, like, you know, 
you don't have to do this, you know, like, They all <laughs> have, like, Harriet Tubman posters the next day, and you're yeah. like... <laughs> no, not, not even that, but, you know, just, like, having, like, really, like, man, that was great, you know, like, it yeah. was... Uh, what did you think about it? I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. I, I, I think that our... At least my conclusion, I think... I hope you agree, is that we need to move away from this sort of personalized race, racial politics, and I don't know how we do it because it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I don't know if we get to the other point, but I don't. I think the movement will fail if we don't. Yeah. I think we have to welcome yeah. this kind of book in the context of a union, though, or some other sort of form that is already working towards a goal. I think I can see this mm. book operating in, like, you know, you're part of a housing struggle, but there's some racism going on, and you need to resolve that. And, like, the white people form a group and try to, like, do some of their own shit. Like, I can actually see that potentially working. But I, because I didn't read to the end of the Robin D'Angelo, I don't know if her final chapter is, like, the solution is capital, like, anti-capitalist revolution. No, no. <laughs> I skipped to the end like Jay. The solutions are just you have to think about it more. And I do yeah. think the concept of white fragility is interesting to pinpoint and isolate. Like it is this mm-hmm. kind of phenomenon that might be useful. But then her approach though her approach to deal with it is like the terrible it's all our fault. Gotcha. You know. Yeah. They're all the victims of us kind of stuff that are people people are reacting against in the first mm-hmm. place. And I so I think um you know, it's not, it's, it's, I don't, I don't know how many people are going to be convinced by this if they weren't already convinced by this, this idea that like every white person is culpable um, for this thing called, you know, whiteness and anti-blackness and all people of color are, uh, you know, they live completely separate lives from us. We can't understand what, the, what it's like for them at all. Yeah, That's the part that really bothers me, gotcha. you know, because yeah. that's a part that feels anti-solidarity. Right. And right. um, and I you know I I read I read Kianga's book about the Kambahi River Collective and I had already read Assad Hader's book about you know mistaken identity mm-hmm. which is also about the Kambahi River Collective and I think they make a similar argument which is just that uh, you know like it, it is good to focus on identity if the purpose is to reach out and build solidarity with other people with the idea and i think this happened at the black trans march which made me very happy which is that if the idea is that if we can save the most oppressed people in society then by debt by the you know then if we can solve that oppression then all the other oppressions are also undone yeah. you know by default um and that we can find connections with other people and build coalitions through that that was done at the black trans march i think at the brooklyn museum from the speeches mm-hmm. that i saw but i do think that this type of th- book like white fragility is actually an is a is in opposition to that right Right. because it is basically saying we can't understand each other and all we can do is be separate identity shells that pay constant penance and deference to to people of color yeah and that's where i think we do have to maybe bust through this thing Mm -hmm. you know and i just don't know how it is the entirety of mainstream media is this right like like nobody actually reads no one listens to our podcast. Nobody actually reads Jack. <laughs> you know, like. I just oh, saw an article this morning about um, Asian, more and more like Asian American stuff about how like Asian, what Asians went through can't compare to what black people went through. Uh, this was in response to uh, uh, um, an art image that was, you know, saying yellow peril supports black power and how we shouldn't say that because Asians have 
had completely different experiences than black Americans. And I think that's the same impulse so to rate, to rank oppressions is to actually make it harder to feel like you have shared interests and shared yeah. collectivity, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. like oppression, uh, oppression Olympics is a complete dead end. And I don't understand how we undo that or how we just flip it a little bit to make it be like, but we do, you know, let's all fight for black trans people and liberate all of us together, right? Because that's not the, that's not the message. Like, we just have to be honest about it. It's not the message. The message is that is a hierarchy and saying, oh, I have to reflect on my own privilege and we should say, you know, we should save black trans people. And that, A, turns them into eternal victims, but B, also takes out any personal agency or attempt for solidarity. You can go to a march, but you're not going to fight because you feel implicated in it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, the, the strength of this is really depressing to me to think about because I don't know, I, I just don't know where it's not. It's everywhere. Mm. Like this is the main message, isn't it? Like even even at some of these marches you go to, like that that's what it is. Is all this ally bullshit, you know? Like yeah, this is how you are. You be a good ally, um, and yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the kids don't seem to care about much of that stuff. They'll save us. <laughs> hopefully okay well thank you for listening to the podcast uh once again well i don't know what that was uh once again thank you to our editor james and uh we will be back next week with another episode and i think this week we'll try and write something as well to continue our multimedia sprawl but uh <laughs> till next time guys Bye.